I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. We talk very often about empowering women, something that I'm truly passionate about. But I think we should also talk about empowering men. Because when men rise to their responsibility, we create a better world. My guest today is a renowned authority on the topic of empowering men. Dr. Robert Glover is the author of the brilliant although a bit controversial, best-selling classic, No More Mr. Nice Guy. And I know your mind would immediately jump into what's wrong with being a nice guy? Why would we no longer want nice guys? And I'd ask you to hold that thought for now. I'll ask him that question as soon as we start. But let me just tell you that through his book, his classes, his therapy group, Robert has helped thousands of nice guys transform from being passive, sometimes resentful victims, to empowered, fully integrated, and responsible men. And in doing so, he not only transformed their professional careers and intimate relationships, but the impact that through this transformation they could bring to the world. Before we get started, though, I will ask you to stay open-minded for this conversation. It may sometimes trigger you the wrong way. And I also want you to understand that there is nothing in the nice guy syndrome that we will discuss that demonizes being nice. As a matter of fact, it defines what being nice and responsible and impactful is all about. So listen closely. So while I wait for Robert to join, let me tell you about something that I think you may like. Remember my friend Dan Murray Sartre, who was my guest on episode 14 back in June? He hosts one of Europe's most successful podcasts, podcast called Secret Leaders, which normally interviews major artists, tech entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and so on, usually world-class leaders who are notoriously private and very hard to pin down, and so... Dan usually manages to get them to speak on his podcast when they normally don't speak on other, you know, to other public media in general. So he's launching on October 27th, season six of his podcast. And this time he'll also be hosting many guests that will discuss topics that I think you will be interested in. Arlen Hamilton, for example, who started her venture capital firm when she was homeless uh, we'll be there to discuss representation and diversity. I think that would be very interesting. Uh, James Clear, who is the author of Atomic Habits, uh, will discuss the science of habits, something that I believe is very important for happiness, how to build happy, uh, you know, habits of happiness is very, very important. And then uh, the incredible Alain de Baton, who was uh, definitely one of the most loved episodes or guests here on Slow Mo, episodes 29 and 30, is going to be on Secret Leaders too. And you know Alain, so God knows what he's going to talk about this time, but I'm sure you will love it. 
So uh, check it out, Secret Leaders. I think you may like it. There you are. There you are too. So, so you know what, Robert? One of the in most interesting experiences I've had with No More Mr. Nice Guy was this. It came recommended to me at the stage of my life where I was perceived by others, if you want, because of my public work to be wise. So I was like, okay. yeah, who's, who's giving me this? It's like, oh, you know what? And every page at the beginning, like I, I think I read the first page and I was like, oh, that's might not be for me. I'm, I'm a nice guy. I like to be a nice guy, mm -hmm. right? And then literally every single paragraph afterwards, I was like, oh, yes, I do that stuff. Oh, is this guy spying on me? Like, oh my God, yes, that's exactly <laughs> me, right? And, and then, of course, you know, I was like, seriously, there is something there. Is this like a very well-known pattern? And then I got into that bit where I said, but hey, what's wrong with being a nice guy? And that's exactly when you hit me. It's like, yes, there is something wrong with being a nice guy. Now, I don't think my listeners are fully aware of this. I'm going to recommend very strongly for every single one of them, man or woman, to read the book. But let's brief them very quickly. What's wrong with being a nice guy? Well, I, I, there's a reason I put that information in the very first chapter of the book because, yeah, I, I, I was like you. I was a self-proclaimed nice guy. I thought that's, that's a good thing. Why doesn't everybody think that way? Why doesn't everybody be generous and kind and concerned and compassionate? And, and those are good qualities. But what I first began discovering in me and then began noticing other, other men I was working with as a therapist was this belief system that if I'm, if I'm a good guy, if I do everything right, then I'll be liked, I'll be loved, I'll get my needs met. And what that really often translates to in the, is the nice guys becoming chameleons, where we try to become what we think other people want us to be, to get their approval, to get their love, to get sex. And we hide things about us that we think might get a negative reaction from other people. And so there's not a real us there. There's not an authentic, honest, transparent self. And, you know, it's kind of like we're constantly you're looking at our finger, holding it up, see which way the wind's blowing and what's the right thing to do here. So as I go into the book, there's a lot of consequences of that. Nice guys are often dishonest. They're often frustrated and resentful. They rarely have good, healthy boundaries. They often give to get, so they're manipulative. And they often have a lot of hidden behavior that they, they keep hidden, sometimes from themselves, but no, no, but hold, hold on. Let's, let's not skim through that because I think that's really the core of the issue. Sure. The, the, the core of the issue is that we tell ourselves that by being nice, we're actually nice, but we're not because being nice sometimes leads us to be dishonest because we don't want to show that we're not nice. Is, is that yeah. how it, how it that's, works? That's exactly right. And, and how I actually started my own nice guy recovery, I was in my second marriage and I was doing everything I, I could to please my, my new wife. And about two, three years into, into the marriage and me just, you know, doing everything under the sun I could think of to make her happy, keep her in a good mood, keep her wanting to have sex with me. And, and she announced, she says, I, I can't take it anymore. What? Everybody thinks you're such a nice guy. You're nice to everybody else, but you're not so nice to me. And I'm thinking, I'm nice to you all the time. I'm always trying to make you happy. And she said, you, I, I can't take it. I'm going to leave if you don't go get help. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You're the one who's unhappy and angry and moody all the time. And she said, I can't take your passive aggressiveness anymore. Now, I was in my 
early 30s to mid 30s. I already had a PhD in marriage and family therapy, and I didn't really know what she was even saying when she said, I can't take your passive aggressiveness anymore. And, and so I actually did go to a 12-step group and to therapy and then joined a men's group, all trying to figure out why me being a nice guy didn't make her happy. So the core piece that she was objecting to, it was just the tip of the iceberg, right? Me being passive aggressive, me expressing my anger in indirect roundabout ways. But it also involved, you know, me, me hiding things I thought she might react negatively to, not telling what I really thought, what I really wanted, not telling her if I was upset about something. Sometimes I would just let that stuff build until it would all just kind of blow up. And uh, she used to, my ex-wife referred to this as my victim pukes. And man, <laughs> it, they were not nice. They were not nice at all. So yeah. here I'm on one extreme, I'm passive aggressive, expressing my anger really indirectly, you know, pokes, jabs, put downs, embarrassing her in public, not following through on things, or just flat blowing up and, you know, puking everything I've been rehearsing about. I wanted to say, you know, that's not so nice. And, you know, after some of those victim pukes, she would ask me, how long has this been bothering you? And I'd think about it and go, I don't know, six months or so. And she Mm -hmm. goes, did it ever cross your mind to just talk to me about this? And I said, no, honestly not. It it never entered my mind that maybe I should just tell you I'm upset about something. That, That was all that hiding, the repressing, the avoiding that was just one example of how I wasn't so nice. Yeah, but but then but that but that but then you explain this so clearly. It's because of that contract that was never the signed. Covert contracts. Yeah, yeah, there's there's three of them. Three of them that have never been signed. And I talk about those in the book. But I've been I've been working on me and with nice guys for 20 years since the book came out. So I've really honed this down to three basic covert contracts of nice guys. And they're covert, they're hidden. We're not even often conscious and nobody else has signed off on the contract, as you said. But basically, they're these three things. And they're all if-then propositions. And they're all basically manipulative. They're giving to get. So covert contract number one, if I'm a good guy, whatever that means, then I will be liked, loved, and the people I want to have sex with will want to have sex with me. And, and, and we can come back to all three of these, but all of them are highly ineffective. Covert contract number two is that if I meet your needs without you having to ask, then you will meet my needs without me having to ask. Yeah. All kinds of problems with that one. Totally. Uh, covert contract number three, if I do everything right, and I'm the scorekeeper, by the way, I got a big scoreboard, you know. Mm-hmm. In, in yeah, right, way. as per my yeah. view of right. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm the judge, jury, of, official, you know, uh, whatever. If I do everything right, then I will have a smooth, problem-free life. Now, mm-hmm. of course, life is not smooth and problem-free, but yeah. nice guys have this Peter Pan magical thinking, yeah, I can just get it right, and then everything will go fine at work, and you know, my boss will never be upset, or my wife will never be unhappy, or women will like me and love me and want to be with me. I mean, th- th- you know, I, my book's written to men, but women do these totally. things as well. You know, I, they've got I, the I, same so I, tell you, I tell you openly, huh, this is the most important book on the planet for women to read, because in reality... The reason a man becomes a nice guy is a woman. I mean, again, this was so eye-opening at the beginning of the book that, you know, the fact that we grow up to a mother and then go to school where 90% of the teachers in young age are women and then mm-hmm. we go, you know, and, and we get influenced in a very interesting way, but by what women didn't like about their men, 
not really what they want in men. And so we grow up being nice guys because we want to please women. That, that is a huge, huge piece of it is, is wanting that validation from women, wanting the love of women, wanting uh, to have a girlfriend, someone to connect with. And of course, you know, wanting sex and, um, and, you know, gay men, yeah, they translate it the same way, but I think a lot of it still comes going back to, to the early influence of, of women in our life. And that's not to put blame on women in any way, because a lot of this is really put in place and triggered culturally because, you know, for the last hundred years or so, fathers have not been overly involved with their sons. And so, you know, most of the, our early influence has been from women and by mm-hmm. default, not that that's anybody, not that that's any woman's fault, but I, I often say, like you mentioned, the school system, the third grade not only needs to master his reading, writing, and arithmetic, but figure out how to please a woman. You know, what, mm-hmm. what do I have to do to, to get approval and you know, even move on to the next grade? Now, the core problem is, is the male brain is not really good at figuring out what, what's really most important to the female brain. So that, that leads to a lot of frustration. I think, I think that's a very, very politically correct statement. Let's, let's re-say this, Robert, in the right way. We have no clue, right? <laughs> we until, have no clue. <laughs> exactly. Until, until we get educated, which I think is really the eye-opening bit. I want, I want to go back to the, to, to the covered contracts, right? So we think that if we are nice, if we're good, okay, mm-hmm. then we will get what we want. Right. If we give, then we will get back without asking for what we want. Exactly. Okay. And that if we do everything right, hmm, uh, life will be perfect. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and I want us to pause here for a second for every one of our listeners to actually think if any of those statements are true at all. Because, because at the core of the issue is, you know, how often do you give and not get back, not because of bad intentions on the other side, but because they don't know what you want yeah. because you haven't said it, right? How often are you nice, but life is not nice back to you? Yeah. How often uh, do, you, do you do things right, but things don't go right? They go wrong sometimes. And, and at the core of this whole idea is if you haven't signed that, that contract, don't, don't expect that contract to be kept, right? I mean, it's never been signed. It's never been signed, and and nice guys live this contract in every aspect of life. You know, they play it out at work. They play it out in their relationship with women. Basically, they play it out with God and the cosmos. You know, <laughs> hey, I'm I'm doing it all right. How come how come everything doesn't just work out the the way it should go? Now, add another piece to this that, that I go into in the book is that especially around the the getting our needs met. Nice guys are terrible receivers. We're not good at getting our needs met. Most every nice guy I've ever worked with, includes me, feels like we're doing something wrong if we have needs and want someone to help us get them met, that we're bad, that someone's going to be mad at us. And so, for example, while we're out there giving to, quote, get by through our covert contracts, not only do we not express what we need or want, we tend to surround ourselves with people that are the least capable usually have actually given anything back. And if people do try to give back, we don't let them. You know, pretty much every woman I've ever been with in my adult life says, Robert, you're really difficult to give to. And, I know, you know exactly. So, and and I, I've had to address that. I've had to accept the reality of that, that by making myself so needless and wantless, that it's challenging for people to find some space to even come in and, and give to me and get the joy of giving to me because mm. for most people giving is is a joyous thing and i tell nice guys all the time you know you you being a terrible receiver robs people of the joy of giving 
let people give to you. And uh, that's, that's really almost a paradoxical worldview for, for most nice guys. So, so the, reason we, the reason nice guys will do this is because they believe that it takes away from the contract. Like if I, if I receive, then basically I am less worthy to get the contract you know, fulfilled. You know what? Honestly, this is one of those pieces I think varies for every guy. Is is one of those pieces is, is kind of deep down in in dark emotional stuff. For a lot of guys, we think, okay, dad's needy and demands all the attention in the family. I won't be like dad. And if I have needs, then I'm like dad and I'm bad. Or my older sibling that's sick or acting out all the time is such a strain on mother. You know, so I'll be just needless and wantless and never a moment's problem. But it it, it seems at times for many men and, and including me to go even deeper, almost like I'm I'm evil. I'm bad. I'm, I'm going to be punished severely for having needs. And if people see that I have needs, or if I ask them to help me meet my needs, the response is going to be, you know, annihilating. It feels that strong for, for a lot of nice guys. And so it, it really is excruciating when I work with men around making their needs a priority. I mean, I'll give, I'll give guys a legal pad and say, let's, let's talk about, you know, you making your needs and wants a priority. Let's start just writing some things down. And guys will just stare at the page and go, I, I don't even know where to start with making my needs a priority. And, mm-hmm. and they think they're doing something wrong to say, I want this, I need this. And, and even doing something wronger if they ask somebody to help them with that. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll go do it myself. You know, yeah. nice guys often tend to think, well, I'll just go do it myself. I don't, I don't need anybody else to help yeah. me with this. Yeah. And, but, and it's, it's that whole idea of, uh, I'm tough, you know, I'm, I won't cry. I won't show I have needs. I, you know, I can, I can get those things done. I'm, I'm, I'm a man. I'm a good man. I'm a capable man. And that includes, you know, I don't need any help from outside of me. And which is as wrong as it can be. But at the same time, here we are, giving and giving and giving with the hope of getting back, even though we're not good at receiving and then getting pissed off because nobody seems to give as much back as we give, whether that's a girlfriend, a coworker or God, you know, it's kind of like, how, how come, you know? And so yeah. now we're, we're all pissed off at them when the truth is we we've made it almost impossible for anybody to give to us. It's, it's shocking. It's shocking how true this is. I remember vividly in my mid twenties, you know, when I started to become unhappy about life, I had a, a journey where I, I became very, very successful and very rich, but very unhappy about life. Right. And I, I complained about everything, including why is God not giving me back? And I remember vividly uh, an evening, I must've been 28 or something working my ass off. Right. But then my friends are getting a little bit ahead of me. They're getting better jobs. They're Mm. growing. And I remember I sat next to my fish tank, which was like my pride. And I really loved how to make this thing beautiful. And four fish died that day. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I like raise my hand to God and I go like, what is wrong with you? It's like, I'm doing everything right here. Right. Why are you not dealing with me as per the contract, right? Yeah. Why, why am I not getting back, right? And it's so cathartic to swear at God, isn't it? <laughs> I I'm, I'm actually, I, I know you're not very religious, but I actually am quite religious. I'm like, yeah, I, I, was just, I, I, yeah, I was just debating the agreement. It's like, isn't that what they told me? That if I was going to be good, I was going to get things back, right? Yes. But, but, but here's the dilemma, Robert. And I think this is really very eye-opening for a lot of people. We 
Let, let's take relationships, right? So, so because relationships are a big part of unhappiness in the world, and, and it's a big part of my focus in my work on happiness. So we nice guys or men in general, even, even the ones that are not really nice, we don't get exactly what women want, right? We assume that women want us to be nice, okay? So we act nice and it pisses women off because in all reality, women think they want us to be nice, but in yeah. reality, they don't. Nice actually bores them and, as you said, even repulses them. That's the pissed off part. Mm. And, and that, that, is a, that is a complex statement to say, but it's actually a very simple statement to solve if you get it, right? Mm -hmm. but, but by saying, honestly, give a woman what she wants, not what she thinks she wants. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we could parse this apart. And as you're right, we're, we're starting to tread in, into areas. So he, here's the thing, and, and you know, we can dive you know, more into this because it's, it's related, but it's another big piece, is that here's, here's number one. I, I've been telling men for a long time that for women to experience attraction and sexual arousal towards a man and want to stay with him over time, they have to experience what I call emotional tension. Now, women say, oh, I want a nice guy. But then when I say, well, why do they go off with the jerks? Yeah. Well, the jerks create emotional tension. Now, for women, I found it doesn't matter if that emotional tension is positive or negative. They just need it to feel attraction and arousal towards a man. Nice creates absolutely no emotional tension. If I'm doing everything under the sun for you and trying to make you happy, there's no tension. And that is, is, is boring. But there's even a bigger piece is that the nice guy, the guy that's giving to get is actually coming from a really empty place. And that covert contract is basically a big emotional hose that we want to hook up to the woman that says, look, I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be different than the other men. I won't be a jerk. I'll give to you. I'll let you treat me badly. I'll, blah, blah, blah. And in return, you know, what's, what's that in return that we're wanting? That's the big emotional hose that we want to come fill our empty bucket. Because we haven't been doing a good job of filling our own bucket. Mm -hmm. In my experience, overflowing buckets, when, when, when a person is taking really good care of themselves, taking responsibility for their needs, surrounding themselves with people who are available and want to help them get their needs met, people, professionals, institutions, hobbies, you know, practices, then that bucket's full. I found that is amazingly attractive to all things feminine. Money, opportunity, women, dogs, cats, babies. But when that bucket is empty and we're going to the feminine, opportunity, money, adventure, women, with an empty bucket and a hose that we want to, you know, get them to, you know, to fill our bucket, it repulses them. And I say it angers them. It does them. repulse them. It's basically after a while, they go like, where's the man in that? Yeah, that's, that's, that's disgusting. And, and, you know, I, I've had so many women say, you know, if a man can't stand up to me, how will he ever stand up for me? Or if a man lets me walk all over him, why, you know, as I heard uh, David Data say, what woman would be turned on by a man whose greatest passion is her? And so this nice guy thing that we think we're doing the right thing to please women, and we think, because we've heard them complain about the jerk, so we're not trying not to be that. Uh, the truth is we create no emotional tension. We've got the big emotional hose that we want to hook up to them. And there's no sense of self in us for them to actually be drawn to. 
And then we're, then we're perplexed and can't figure out why I've done everything right. How come I don't have a girlfriend? How come I never get laid? How come, how come, how come? And then the resentments build up because we've made women our God and say, okay, I'm doing this for you, God. Look, I'm doing it for you. You know, like me back, you know, like you and your fish tank and, and, you know, God, how come? And then when that resentment builds up, women can sense that they yeah. can sense. Our, our, our bitterness and resentment. We're, you know, we're trying to cover it up with the facade of niceness, but they sense our bitterness and resentment and they want to get away from it as far away from it as they can. Yeah. But so, so, so here we are, you and I, two dudes, you know, two dudes with bald heads talking about what women want. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. There, there, that's gotta be a recipe for disaster somewhere. <laughs> no, but seriously. So women listening to this, if you disagree, find us on, on social media and say you disagree. But if you do agree, please find us on social media and say that you agree, because I think this is very important. You know, if men out there, because women also complain that men are not giving them what they want, but you know, sure. if, if men out there get to know that a woman actually wants a man to stand up to herself, you know, when it's right, lovingly, Sure. You know, caringly, but but she wants that in her life, and that the constant nice guy is a turn off. I think men need to know that. Now, to talk about emotional tension again. What is in an emotional? Is an emotion supposed to be attraction? What is an emotional tension? Okay, the way I describe emotional tension, you know, the, the example I used to give to men to illustrate is, you know, just go watch a typical chick flick. You know, there's a, a man and a woman and there's tension between them, you know, m- maybe thinks she's a, you know, a ball breaking bitch and he, she thinks he's a, you know, an arrogant jerk. And we know they're going to get together. You know, mm-hmm. why? Because we've seen the formula enough times. Exactly. Or, yeah. or, or there's some social thing keeping them apart or whatever. But we know they're going to get together because there's tension in it. But, you know, we, we watch the, the first act of the movie and, you know, all that's building and we know they're going to get together. Okay, end of act one, they do. They get together, it's great. Most of act two, they're, everything's great. You know, fireworks, you know, adventures, great pillow talk, all that stuff. But towards the end of act two, something happens to break that tension up. You know, for guys watching the movie, we go, okay, they fell in love, let's leave. For the women, no, 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 we, we need more tension. So the end of act two, something happens to, to break up. There's this beautiful union. His, his ex-girlfriend comes around looking sexy, wanting to give it another try, or, you know, their parents forbid them to see each other, or the woman thinks she's been neglecting her career, so she goes to Africa to dive into the, you know, and they're miserable, and they're apart, and, and, and women are just soaking this up, and we men are going, can we leave now? Is this over? <laughs> and then, and so for most of, of Act 3, there's this tension between them. We see they're both miserable. We know they should be together, but they're both being such stupid idiots that they, you know, and then finally, their friends or circumstance find a way to trick them to, you know, come back into each other's presence, and then, and then they just they resist, they resist. That's all tension, right? And then finally, they give in. Right. Mm. And then they both profess, I'm so stupid. No, I'm so stupid. And, you know, you know, they're beautiful. Everything's great, blah, blah, blah. And then the credits roll and they have the wedding scene and everybody's dancing and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you know, we've seen it a thousand times. They keep making that same movie over and over again. Yeah. Why? Because women keep paying to go see that movie. So it doesn't matter if it's sex in the city. It doesn't matter if it's daytime drama. It doesn't matter if it's The Bachelor. It doesn't matter if it's nighttime soap, Grey's Anatomy. It's the emotional tension that that arouses the the female. Now, we men like some degree of emotional tension, 
you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get it in our sporting events, but they've all got a clock. Right? They end at a certain time. Mm-hmm. We'll mm-hmm. go watch, you know, Sly or Vin or The Rock or whoever being in an action movie, but we know it's going to end in two hours, right? And we know it's all ridiculous. Um, but, but we don't like emotional tension in our personal relationships. Right? Yeah. We want them smooth and calm and easygoing and predictable. So here's the problem. I believe in general, I'm going to make general statements. So in general, women need emotional tension to feel attraction to a man, to be sexually aroused by him. And and that can be caused by 10,000 different things. For men, our emotional tension towards a woman is usually caused by one or two things. Usually her boot, her butt. (laughs) The women is a multiple of things. And, And we men can't predict those. We just can't. We think we can, but we can't. You know, we think, oh, I'll drive a hot car or, you know, I'll make a bunch of money or, you know, I'll, I'll have six back abs and, you know, that, that, that will do the trick. But, you know, women have told me, I, I love your hands or I love your shaved head or I love your kind eyes or I love your kissable lips. Those aren't the things I thought were going to get me laid, but, but, but they create an emotional tension for, mm-hmm. for, and it varies, of course, in every woman. So for the woman, they need the emotional tension to be attracted to a man. Uh, have sexual arousal and and to want to stay connected to him and sexually aroused by him over time. I've been a yeah. marriage therapist for over 30 years. And of course, that's one of just the biggest complaints men and women both have in long-term relationships. The sex just died. So my theory is, is that on the other side of that equation is in general, men don't like emotional tension, especially in intimate personal relationships. So not only do we not create any, by the way, we live or interact with women, which therefore that women have nothing to be attracted to or aroused by. Again, that niceness doesn't create tension for women. Totally. So either we don't create it, or if there is some tension in the relationship, we try to solve it as quickly as we can and get everything back to good. So, you know, we don't have to deal with, you know, that noise because it is noise to us men. Or if a woman's creating what I call negative emotional tension. Now, you know, this sounds really weird to men, but for women, they don't really care if the emotional tension is positive or negative. It totally true. It, right. So if they're, if they're slamming cabinets or throwing dishes in the sink or criticizing you or flirting with your, your best friend, that, that's all emotional tension. And for most people, for, for the men and women, usually both, it all feels ne- is negative, but it's still emotional tension. So then what do most guys do? We go try to solve what's causing that tension, get it back to good. So while the woman, again, general statements, there's every woman's different, every man's different, but there's generalizations. While the woman's needing the emotional tension, negative or positive, good or bad, it doesn't matter. She's got to feel something. The guy doesn't want to feel anything. So he's doing his damnedest to put those fires out every time they come up. And then, then we men can't figure out why women either aren't attracted to us in the first place or after they get to know us on, after a second or third date and we're trying our best to please them and get them to like us, why they never call us back again, why they ghost us and never come around or, or why our wife after, you know, two or three years in a marriage just, you know, it's just too tired, not interested in sex anymore. And we can't figure that out. This is really interesting because in an interesting way, it's, it's definitely one of the biggest challenges with happiness is relationships. And one of the biggest challenges with relationships is that the sex dies out, right? And, yeah. and what you're saying here is actually quite interesting because the nature of a steady relationship by the man and also by the woman is to try and reduce tension and increase predictability. It's like, yes. hey, can we make this easy? 
right? But then when it's easy, it's not hot anymore. It's not exciting yeah. anymore. And you're absolutely spot on. Huh? I mean, negative or positive emotional tension, the, the reason why makeup sex and the, the morning after is wonderful is because it's tension. Right? But all the tension build up. And, and you, you've hit the nail on the head. You may be familiar with this book. It's, it's one of my favorites by Esther Perel called oh, yeah. Mating in Captivity. You know, uh, just a brilliant relationship therapist. And, and her basic premise is, that intimacy basically kills sex. Mm-hmm. That the the more we get to just know somebody and begin to you know work for predictability, but maybe closeness and comfort over time, it it just takes the tension. She doesn't call it that, but it takes that the hotness out of relationship. And you know, as, a, as again as a marriage therapist, you know. We're taught, well, you know, help people get rid of all those things you get that get in the way of intimacy, you know, being known and known, knowing yourself and being known by another person. And intimacy is great. And certain types of intimacy where we're working to make sure everybody's happy and everything's clicking okay over time tend to just, you know, sap the juice out, out of the sexual yeah. part of it. Yeah. Now, so so I, I want to come back to all of this because I think the whole story we're trying to build for listeners here is there seems to be something needed for a relationship to succeed, but that's not what is the headline of the, of the news says, right? There is something hidden in the article that we need to understand, but the headline says, make it stable, make it easy, give me all my needs. But the truth is this is not uh, there. And I think the other incredibly powerful proof of that was the incredible success of Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the whole idea of, you constantly talk about what you call misplaced beliefs, belief systems, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and the whole belief system that we start with, that I laughed my head off when I heard you say this once, sex is a sin, it's bad, <laughs> it's evil, and so, and so keep it to the one that you love, yeah, right? Save, <laughs> keep it for the one you love. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Save it for the one that you love. And, 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 and that whole idea of preconditioning that says women don't like sex as much as men, okay? Women are doing, giving you sex as a favor, so you might as well pay for it. When suddenly Fifty Shades of Grey doesn't only say that a woman is as interested in sexuality and maybe some extremes of sexuality as a man, but even a a very clear statement that a woman actually might be interested in the man to be a little more dominant than the current story of feminism is making it seem. Do, Do you believe that to be true? Sensitive topic. We have to. No, no. Actually, I'm going to dive into it. I'm going to dive into it because the backstory for me with Fifty Shades of Grey is that I read it, oh, say six years ago. You know, when it was in its heyday, because you know, I wanted to know what what are what are these ninety million people, women that have bought this book? What are they buying it for? Now, I'd also had the book, The Count of Monte Cristo, recommended to me. So I actually read. The Count of Monte Cristo and Fifty Shades of Grey at the same time. I'd read a chapter of one and then go to the chapter of the other. And, and back and forth on my Kindle, you know, reading one. And I promise you, after a couple of chapters of Fifty Shades of Grey, I, I couldn't wait to get through each chapter to get back to The Count of Monte Cristo. You know, that was, that, that's classic writing. That's classic guidebook. That's such a great book. And, and I was, you know, really drawn to that. But here was my takeaway of Fifty Shades of Grey. I think... Uh, this is my my thought, my spin. I think maybe the media mismeasured 
what was going on in that in, in that phenomena. And we said, oh, that women really are into, you know, softcore BDSM. And and I, I want to come back to, to how women are, because I'm the book I'm writing now, I make the statement that women are the most sexually evolved creatures on the entire planet. Women, human being women, and that they are sexual Ferraris. And in contrast, men tend to be sexual mopeds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you want, we'll come we're, back to that. We definitely will come back to that. <laughs> okay. So the, my, my read on the Fifty Shades of Grey is I think we got too caught up in the, in the softcore BDSM. As I, what, what frustrated me as a guy reading that book is that the woman, you know, has got the, this fantasy guy, you know, billionaire, you know, he, he flies helicopters, you know, he's, he's, he plays piano, concert piano, you know, he's drop dead gorgeous, every, you know, but he's, you know, way above her. She's way down here. She's, you know, a college student. I get, if I remember right when she meets him, a journalist. And what was most interesting to me was not the BDSM part of the book. It was the dynamic of what went on in the woman's head throughout the story. That is, oh, this guy couldn't possibly want me. He couldn't possibly be interested in me. Who am I? And it's all tension. I'm not good enough. And then when she starts being attracted to and turned on by the BDSM aspects of it, then from there on out, she starts trying to change him. She loves what he does to her, and she, she's constantly trying to pull that in and modify it and put, put wraps on it. And, you know, yeah, I love what you do to me, but quit being the way you are. You know, keep, you know and, and it reminded me of, a, of an article I read in The Onion a few years ago, a satirical online magazine. that It was titled, Woman Turns Boyfriend into a Guy She No Longer Wants to Be With. <laughs> Story of time, right? This is so, a story as old as time. So I, my read on 50, the Fifty Shades of Grey was not so much that there's millions of women out there seeking the BDSM, even though, yes, Absolutely. I do believe having being able to trust a, the, the strength and fierceness and dominance of a man that's open-hearted and loving and, and trustworthy is powerful women. I mean, I, I have no doubt of that. It's amazingly powerful. I teach men that. But I think the part that women were flocking to that book about was the neurosis of the woman herself and how she couldn't just accept this amazing man wanting her and she couldn't just accept him the way he was, no matter how amazing and prince charming and dreamy he was, she had to change him to something that she felt like she could manage or made sense to her brain. I think that's what women flock to because my guess is that's what's going on in a lot of their brains the majority of the time is they keep finding these things that they're head over heels about the guy, but they want to keep finding things to be unhappy about and keep changing, even though the things are lighting them up and arousing them. No, but I don't want it to be that way. Let's see if we can change it. And so mm. I think that's what re- women were relating to most in that mm. book, not the soft core BDSM. That was actually the most boring part of the book. The, the, the BDSM part, just like, okay, I'm snoozing now. You know, let, let, totally. uh, let, let's get back to the Count of Monte Cristo. That's interesting. <laughs> exactly. But totally, but that's so, so interesting because once again, it's not the violent part of it. Okay. But it's that whole idea of, I'm, I'm sorry to say, eventually, you know, Hollywood still turned it into a chick flick because eventually she sort of changes him. She gets him to be 
exactly what he what she wants, or oh, at least closer to where she that's wants. That's so sad. That's so sad. Yeah, that's the that's the third movie, and the third movie is like I'm I'm sure for every woman is like oh my god, that's amazing. I can do that too, which I have to say is misleading because men would rarely ever change that drastically. I believe for for a woman, yeah. as a matter of fact, if they do. They'll probably just be nice guys, right? Yeah, but, at the, yeah. but at the same time, you know, I think most men were like, seriously, is that how it's all, all always going going to end? And I think that misalignment between the views of men and the views of women is really where we end up confused. I heard you once say, "Tell her no," because if you really think about uh, Fifty Shades of Grey and the part that turned a lot of ninety million women on was that he was in charge. He yeah. was capable, okay? He uh, had the means, but he sort of, he, he, he set the rules in an interesting way, right? Is that, is that true of every relationship, that there is a need for a little bit of, I'm in charge here, I'm, I can take care of this? You know, and again, I'm going to make generalizations, because I can't say it's true in every, because every relationship is different. You know, my view is all men and women have some degree of what I'll call masculine traits, some degree of what I'll call feminine traits. My, my, my break it down to the most bare bones is masculine does. Masculine penetrates. So it's the masculine in us that goes out and gets stuff done. The feminine in us is the part that is done too. It's the part of us that is penetrated, for good or for bad. And I think most of us have a default. Well, we default more one direction than the other. We default more masculine or we default more feminine. Now, it, it, it'd be too simple to say, well, men always just default masculine and women always default Spot feminine. On. Absolutely. There, there, there's a lot, a lot of women that have a very strong masculine side, a lot of men that have a very strong feminine side that default that way. Totally. So I, wanna, I don't, I don't want to make too big of a generalization, but I do want to use this as, as a teaching tool and something to help both men and women better understand what does help relationships tend to work better. So I think in every relationship, to have a sense of polarity, some sense of tension and excitement, somebody does, by nature, need to move towards the default masculine, and the other person needs to move towards the default feminine. Now, that can be switched back and forth. There, there can be a reciprocity. But what I've found in years of couple counseling in my own relationships, that for it to work well, for the reciprocity to work, the most def by default masculine person in the relationship needs to set up and take the step up and take the take the set the tone and take the lead. Now that it's not about control. It's not even about dominance in the way that you know we hear it spoken of you know, in yeah, what yeah. it's showing up with a plan and being open to you know discussion, negotiation, movement. But it's just, you know, I've I've asked women countless times, how do you feel when your man says, what do you want to do tonight? You want to do something tonight? You want to go out? You want to get dinner? Where do you want to go? Women consistently tell me they hate it. Now, they'll make the decision if, if we burden them with it. But most women in society nowadays have to be in their masculine so much. Whether they're raising kids, that's masculine. Whether they're going to work, that's masculine. Just getting ready to go on the date is masculine. All the things they got to do, right? And so for, for us men to burden the woman with more masculine decision-making, not that they can't, they can. Many women are a lot stronger than we men. My, wife, my wife's Mexican, and um, so we speak all in Spanish to each other. And she tells me somewhat regularly, and she tells other people, that she knows she's got big balls, and her balls <laughs> are bigger than mine. 
They are. She's a tough chick. I mean, she grew up eight out of 10 kids, alcoholic family, poverty, Guadalajara, Mexico, being beat by older siblings, beat by neighbors. She's tough, right? I'm, I grew up in a white bread environment, a suburb of Seattle, Washington, filled with Boeing engineers' families, you know? <laughs> but we're very different. But my wife says, I know I got big balls, and I know they're bigger than you, but I don't ever want to feel like my balls are bigger than yours. I don't, ever, I don't want to be with you, and I say jump, and you say, yes, dear, how high? And a story that, that she likes to tell that, that, that I've told a, a few times is early on in our relationship, before we got married, and she bought an old piece of Honda Accord, and I called it Coche Fail, which is ugly car. Her kids love the name. But she, she wanted me to drive if we ever went anywhere. I was, I was living down here part of the year in Mexico, so I didn't have a vehicle here. And I remember one time I was taking her back to work. She owned a spa. And so I'm taking her in her car back to work driving, and the spa was down a one-way street. And so I'm, I'm driving up another one-way street, right angle to it, and she says, you can just pull over here and let me out. And I said, I just calmly said no and kept driving to the next block, which was a one-way street the other way. And then when I turned that street and she says, you can let me out here. And I just said no. And then I came to a stoplight, which would put me on another one-way street. She knew what I was doing. I was just making the block to come back to drop her off right in front of, of her, her, her spa, her space. So I'm waiting now at a stoplight to make two more turns or to get her. And after the, like the second or third time I told her no, she just moves over, gives me a kiss and says, I love it when you tell me no. Mm-hmm. So in that moment, I could let her out at any of those places because it's what she wanted, right? It's what she said she wanted. Let me out here. I'm thinking, no, I'm going to let her out in front of her space. That's three less streets she has to cross, a couple of them busy, to get to her space. That was me looking out for what I thought was best for the two of us. Not me being controlling, not me trying to dominate her, me just asking myself what feels right, what seems like. And and she gave me a big kiss and said, I love it when you tell me no. Now, is every woman like that? No. But in my experience, again, women have enough shit they got to be in charge of every day that they they want a man that matches their strengths they want a man that's got a spine and you know and balls and 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 can stand up and say no i'm doing it this way they want that fierceness because it, it lets them then relax into a space in which they can going back to 50 shades of gray they can be they can open up and be done to in ways that feel good but if they don't feel safe if they don't feel trusting with the man if they don't think the man, you know, is man enough to be their man, they won't ever trust enough to open up and be taken. And being taken is the deepest feminine bliss uh, mm. imaginable. And that, and that, that I think is where things become super clear, right? Because if you try to do those things without deserving to be her man, you're a jerk, right? If you mm-hmm. don't try to do those things, you're a nice guy. Yeah. Right? And, and that balance in the middle where I will qualify to be your man by taking charge and being responsible, okay, for what is good for both of us. Yes. Right? Which is that reciprocity, if you want, of I will take charge of a few things because I expect you to take charge of other things. And here they are, by the way, the things that I, I expect from you towards me. Right? Yeah. So, so you, you often talk about 
often is the is the time I spend in the UK. Why do I say that? I don't know why. <laughs> anyway, uh, you, you you often talk about codependence versus interdependence and the difference between them. And and you know, in a way, I I, I want to go back to the definition of a real man, but but let's visit that very quickly, huh? Because what you did there was what she needed, okay, mm-hmm. and uh, not exactly what she said, right? And that, in a way, allows her to feel that in the future, if you make that decision, she can depend on you trying to find what that's, is good for her. That's a good analysis of that. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so what, where, where do we fall when we start to get into interdependence, when we start to say, I can't be without her, I can't live without her, I can't have happiness without her, or, you know, where does that go wrong? Yeah, well, where it goes wrong, and, and you know, I, I don't use the word codependency in the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, and I did that on purpose because at that time when I wrote the book, nobody had actually addressed the issue of codependency in men. Mm-hmm. All the books were either about family members, usually of alcoholics, addicts, or women. And, uh, and I wanted to write a book towards men without creating predeceived or confusing ideas. Well, what do I mean codependent? So I don't even use the term. But nice guy syndrome is basically codependency. Uh, another term that you could use is called borrowed functioning. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of a, a good way to look at it because basically for a codependent, they don't exist unless they are in relationship with somebody else. Unless there's a borrowed sense of, oh, I'm loved, I'm needed, I'm valued because, because, whatever, fill in the blank with whatever the because is. Healthy interdependence is when two people can stand alone but choose to stand together. Mm. That's a big difference. And uh, another one of my favorite books is by uh, Dr. David Snarch called Passionate Marriage. And he talks a lot of, about fusion and where we're like, oh, I'm, I'm dependent on you. We got to be together versus healthy differentiation. And he, he stole the terms from a guy named Murray Bowen who wrote about this years ago. He steals it very well. Snarch, I love. He's, one of, he's brilliant. But most of us, when we get into relationship, most how we view most modern relationships, they're fused. I call them ownership relationships. Well, you're my girlfriend, therefore you should. You're my boyfriend, therefore you should. You're my wife, you should. You're my, my, my husband, you should. Those ownership nature relationships are codependent by nature and are dependent on borrowed functioning. Now, Snarch teaches an exercise to couples to, to, to kind of illustrate this, where he, ha- he calls it um, hugging until relaxed. And he has two people hug each other, partners hug each other, but first be grounded. You know, they're, they're, they're grounded in their own two feet, standing, and they hug each other without leaning on the other. They just hug until they relax enough to just melt into each other. Mm-hmm. They don't lose their individual self. They don't have to give that up to be in this embrace. They still support themselves, but they let go into the other. And both, and one person doing that often then kind of makes it easier for the other person to do it because calm is contagious, just like anxiety is contagious. So that's interdependent, where we can be on our own two feet, but yet relax into the other. And you know, and and I'm not a dominant guy by nature, and but in my relationships with women, I've learned that they didn't want to be in control or dominant. So I've learned there are certain ways I can step up. And lead in certain ways. I can, give, I can give examples of that that are pretty simple, but seem to be pretty effective. And I preach to the woman I'm with, no matter, you know, I, I'm on my third marriage, you know, been in a few relationships along the way. I preach we're a team. It's not that 
what this person does is most important. What this person does, we're a team. We're going to work together to bless each other's lives. Let's work to make each other's lives better than they could have been apart. Now, as my coach, who I work with, John Wineland, says, you can want your woman, but as soon as you start needing your woman, you start losing your power. Now, and this also goes back to what we're talking about just a little bit ago. As soon as, as a man starts needing the approval of any woman, so woman he's trying, you know, wanting to attract, to date, to take out, a woman who's in a relationship, as soon as, as we, we get into that, oh, either I need you or I need your approval and validation, everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket. He can't ask himself, what's the right thing to do here? Should I let her out here or keep driving around the block? That question doesn't even enter in. Oh, oh she wants to be left out here. I better let her out here because that's what she said she wanted. And then the woman goes, ah, oh, he failed the test again. You know, I, I can't trust him enough to, to open up. So this doesn't have anything to do, again, with control or dominance in how, how we usually think of it. But it does mean that the woman knows you are strong enough that she can count on you. She can depend on yeah, you. And, and, and they'll test it. Yeah. In, in charge is the word. It's not, it's not dominance. It's I'm, I'm in charge. I can be responsible enough to take this and I know we'll get us home. I know, I know I'm responsible to get that done. It's not dominance. Dominance is I will force you to do something that you don't want and is not good for you. Now, if we, we, we can even parse it down more if we want to, but in these kind of conversations where people can't get feedback, it gets tougher. I actually believe that, that going back to Fifty Shades of Grey, is that I actually would like to use the word dominance and submission. Mm-hmm. But they have, there's, there's, they're, they're so charged nowadays in social discussion, it's hard to do. But, but I really do believe to really have the best sex, there does have to be an interplay of dominance and submission. It, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to be done too. Now, it can trade off back and forth. And I know we don't like the words dominant submission, but to receive, you have to submit. There's just no way around it. You got to let go. And to be done too, there has to be a doer. There has to be somebody you know, that's got some sort of strategy in their mind says, I'm doing this next, right? I'm taking us here. So if we can get kind of the social vibe out of it that, you know, we, that, that, you know, because a lot, a lot of people have been dominated in not very nice ways. Right. Mm. And, and, but if, if this is open hearted, if, if this is authentic and caring, the dominance and submission is at the core of any polarity and, and memorable sex. You can't have it without it. You're going to have just plain vanilla sex without some trading off back and forth of penetrating and being penetrated and, and being open to both. But, but then I think here is the most controversial conversation of our modern world at all. Are you, are you saying in any way, Robert, that we're not equal? We're amazingly equal. And you, you mentioned the UK. I'm from America, so I'm going to use American sports references. In football, American football, Every player on that team is equal and essential. But that doesn't mean that they all play the same position. The, the quarterback and center are both essential. They're equal, but they don't play the same position. They don't do the same thing. The running back and the, the, the cornerback, the, the linebacker, are important, equally important, but they don't play the same role. So thinking that equal means the same is one of the biggest mistakes, one of the most tragic things that's happened to relationships now, you know, it, it work. Okay, maybe that works fine. In intimate relationship, sameness gets boring really, really quick. And, and in my experience, 
again, I'll go back to, I've known and worked with a lot of really strong, successful women. And, and again, they don't want to be, quote, equal. I mean, they, 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 of course, want their relationships to be equally yoked, but they don't want to be in the same role that their partner is. They want a diversity of roles, and they want to be able to move out of that role of I'm in charge of everything all the time. You know, when most women I know, when they come home from work, they want to let go and be done too, and not have to be in that role. So equal does not mean the same. Equal just means equals, but it, differences are what make the world go around. But that doesn't mean one, one, this shade of difference and that shade of difference is one is better than the other. There's just differences. And without them, again, there's no polarity. There's no tension. There's no excitement. There's nothing to look forward to. Amen. I think this is incredibly spot on. I will, I will, I will say, though, I think the most eye-opening part of your work for me has been... Okay, so it's, there is no scarcity of books out there that tell men how to get the woman, okay? Yeah, there's a bunch of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, you go to YouTube and there, is, there must be like a million dating advice video over there. Right? There's a lot of it. Yeah. The, the thing that I adore about what, you're, what you do, and you actually say it publicly, is that for you to make the world better, you'd better step up and assume your role as the masculine of the relationship. If you're the, th I mean, also, by the way, I think people should know you, you work with a lot of gay men, for example, and your, your approach is not men or women. Your approach is if you assume the masculine role, yeah. assume it properly, and that will change not only the relationship, it will also change your life and the world as a result. Are you saying here that the, that the role we're trying to play by taking charge at least to me, this is how I heard it. It's not about my gain of getting the more attractive mm -hmm. woman, okay? It's about really making the machine of life work properly, right? Making it actually last and continue. You know, I, I've, I've written a book called Dating Essentials for Men. So it's another one of those books on there, out there, how to get the women. But when I started teaching men dating skills, what, I, what I've been saying all along, and I say it in that book, I mean, I, I didn't learn how to date till I was in my late 40s. I never saw myself as a dating guru in any sense of the term. But what I say in, in, in the Dating Essentials for Men book is that this book is not really about dating. This book is really about expanding your social and emotional intelligence. I'm just using men's deep desire to have a girlfriend, to have a relationship, to get laid as motivation to expand their emotional and social intelligence. So. You've teed up another space for me that's, you know, a really area of passion for me. Most men, you know, and it goes back to what you and I talked about at the beginning of our conversation. Most men reach adolescence and adulthood having no idea what it means to be a man, what it means to be male, what it means to be masculine. And I'm not anybody that I'm going to say, well, to, to be masculine, you got to be this way. Or to be a guy, you got to be this way. You know, I, I, I don't want to tell anybody what it means to, to be, for them to be male or masculine. But what I found is, for most men, all we've been told since we were little boys is don't be that. Don't be this. Don't be like your father. Don't be like those bad men. Don't, don't be angry. Don't be selfish. Don't. All we know is what don't be, right? <laughs> Nobody's ever helped us embrace us, who we are, and to know what to be, what to make us happy. And I think that where, where I see 
the cause of that is that nowadays we just don't have tribe or masculine initiation sure. for boys. Absolutely. And for, in all of human existence, up until probably the last couple hundred years, we've had some form of tribe or masculine initiation. And, and now boys just don't have that. So it's interesting how you teed this up because in, in the book I'm writing now about positive emotional tension, uh, the premise I'm writing it is, is learning about women's need for emotional tension and learning how to live, both live a life and interact with women in ways that, in, that increase the positive emotional tension in ways that women benefit. They, they get the bliss of, of being lovingly and powerfully penetrated by a conscious man. And it makes you more attractive as a man to, to all things feminine. It is also a powerful masculine initiation. You know, you and I have been talking really this whole time, really about the struggle between men and women. That's really what we've been talking about and, and trying to figure that out. Well, if, you know, a million and a half years into human existence, and men and women are still struggling and trying to figure each other out, that's a pretty ripe area for profound growth, right? Totally. Where, where we struggle the most, I think, as is the most profound place to grow. So by men learning about emotional tension, learning how to interact with women, learning how to live masterfully, lear learning how to put a dent in the universe, learning, you know, how, how, to, how to show up in grounded, open-hearted, embodied, conscious ways, right? I believe is powerful masculine initiation. That's where I think we start making the world a better place. Mm. So here's this kind of paradoxical loop that because I want to get, I want to understand women enough to get laid, I'm going to get a masculine initiation that makes the world a better place. Yeah. That's the way I, I try to treat it and approach it. Amazing. Amazing. Because again, public opinion today somehow makes it look like being a man, being masculine is a bad thing. You know, it comes with violence. It comes with aggression. Mm -hmm. Being the right man isn't, as a matter of fact, one of the reasons our world is lacking and falling behind is because men are not really behaving they should while actually women as well the, you know are not fully living up to that femininity if you want as you rightly said a lot of women get into being being more and more masculine because this is what is needed at work and so on and so forth i'm gonna do a few quicker questions now because okay i, wa I want to have all the time i'm, in the I'm, world. I'm on my toes i'm ready to <laughs> but, but but before i do that i want to do one more pitch for no more mr nice guy because honestly guys if you trust me this is an absolute must read for every man and every woman that want to have a successful relationship. Now, one of the things I loved about that book is how you so unapologetically gave me assignments. It's like, who are you to give me assignments? <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, after, normally I skip the assignments. Like, it's like, okay, yeah, I get it. I'll do it in my mind very quickly. And then with, yeah. with, with yeah, your assignments, with your assignments, I was like, okay, you know what? And you, you actually suggested read the whole book and then come back and do the assignments, read it again and do the assignments. So I followed Sensei. I did exactly what you said. Okay. Now, one of my favorite assignments, because as a nice guy, I'm not very good at receiving, was ask three people to do things for you today. Yeah. Uh, tell me a bit about this assignment, because it seems to me that the idea of self-love and being worthy, healthy self-interest is what you call it seems to be something that's very, very important for a, a no more Mr. Nice Guy, a really 
it is beyond important. It's, it's essential. I'm dropping a lot of my favorite books here. Another one of my all-time favorite books is called The Road Less Traveled by Scott oh, yeah. Peck. I've, I've heard it's the all-time best-selling self-help book. And he talks in there about you know, sections on discipline, love. And on the section on love, he talks about how children come to feel love, not just think they're lovable, but to, to be love, right? To sense, yeah. I, I am love. And he says, if parents are meeting their own needs, basically filling their own buckets up, paying attention to their children, giving them enough attention that they know what the needs of their children are, and then meeting the child's needs in timely and judicious ways. I also add to that equation in consistent ways as well. The child internalizes the beliefs, I'm important, I'm lovable, my needs are important, and the world is like my family, mm-hmm. i.e. children are going to go out into the world and with, hey, I'm valuable, I'm lovable, and my needs are important, and people want to help me meet them. Right? Yeah. And I, when I present this model to guys in my workshops, most of them go, oh, no, that, that, that didn't happen in my family. That's not the belief <laughs> system I grew up with. And so for most nice guys, we, because our needs were not met in these timely, judicious ways, we tend to believe I'm not important. I'm not lovable. I'm not valuable. My needs are not important. Often for most nice guys added into that, if we were kind of pulled up to be our parents, we're parentified by our parent to take care of their needs. We also develop a core belief that I'm not good enough. And we believe the world is like our family. So we go out there believing I'm not lovable. My needs aren't that important. I'm not good enough. And the world's going to reflect that. So if we want to change that a dynamic, now these aren't just thoughts. This is wired into our emotional brain, into our amygdala, into the fight, flight, freeze, survival, respiration, heartbeat part of our brain to, in order to overwrite that. I don't know if we can completely rewrite it. But to to overwrite that operating system, that machine language, we have to start doing what happens to children in loving families. Mm -hmm. We've got to take responsibility for starting to meet our own needs in timely, judicious, and consistent ways. And that begins to overwrite, and it'll create a lot of cognitive and emotional dissonance in the process, but it begins to write, I'm important, I'm lovable, my needs are important, my needs are valuable, I'm good enough, and the world wants to love me and help me get my needs met. But it begins within self. We don't find it outside of ourselves. So in order to get to that place, basically we have to become love. We become love. It is who we are anyway. We have to rediscover it. And Mm -hmm. for me, the only way I know to do it, I mean, we can tell ourselves, we can have a mantra, say a thousand times a day, I'm lovable, I'm special, I'm good enough. But if we don't take the, the action of meeting our own needs in these consistent, timely, judicious ways, we can tell us, you can tell a child a hundred times a day, I love you, I love you. But if you're not meeting their needs in timely, judicious ways, they won't internalize that belief that they're loved. Okay? Mm. So, so that's such a core piece of, of shifting a big part of this paradigm is we do have to start making our needs a priority. We touched on that a little bit before. And that's so challenging for so many of us nice guys. So, yeah. I forget now what you teed that question up with, but maybe you can bring it back. I, 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 no, I, so I, you're not such a dude after all. You're, you're well, I'm not such a dude. What do you mean man. by that? You know, you, we are love. That is, you know, that is so profound when you really think about it. I think that's that idea of fixing what was missing, that, that actually is really, really eye-opening. The reason I teed up that question is because I'm going to do the assignment right now. 
by that's ask- right the breaking free assignments yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, you said ask three people to do something for you i'm going to ask a few thousand people who are listening right now because seriously if you're still here you are admiring that conversation with robert as much as i am which basically means you find this valuable so do your bit Tell others about it because I think a million people should listen to Robert speaking today. Uh, You you know me, I'm trying to make a billion people happy. I'm not going to make a billion people happy alone. The only way I can get there is for you guys to rate this five stars on your uh, podcast player, share it on social media, tell others about it, tell others about Robert's book and books and his work. I think that really makes a difference for everyone. I'm going to go into the controversial bits now. Are you ready? By the way, I have to say I I felt honored by what you just did <laughs> thank you that's amazing yes my did you guys see my sensei likes my work right i i'm doing well let's go to the sex ferrari what was that where did that come from you said women are for and we are the what? sexual what? ferrari mopeds mopeds <laughs> think about it. you know like i said this this is in the upcoming book that i'm working on think about it. you know we, we've got this cultural idea you know, women aren't that highly sexual, aren't that interested in sex, that they're choosy, that they have to protect their, their precious eggs, that they're, they're hypergamous, that, you know, they got to get the best guy with the best genes and the most money. I think all that's horseshit. I, I think the men in the manosphere love talking about all that, but it's horseshit. Women are the most sexually evolved women. Human beings are the most sexually evolved creatures on the planet. They and maybe one other mammal are the only animals on the planet, female that have sex out of season, i.e. they for fun, not just because Mother Nature says have sex now to get pregnant. Women have more parts on their body that can trigger orgasms than any other creature. We men have one, maybe two. Women, I'm not even going to go into all the different places I've known women got triggered into orgasms. Women can think themselves into orgasms. Women can have sex and orgasm and be ready to have sex again. Men, we're basically, I'll just put it bluntly, we, we just want to find a hole again and ejaculate. That's pretty much what men see sex as. You know, just find a nice warm hole and I'm happy. Women are so much more complex. They're like, like I said, they're like Ferraris. They're complex. And they are just wired to have constant sex and a variety of sex. Now, again, men are, and maybe women are going scratching their eyes going, I think a lot of women are listening going, somebody finally gets it. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 can, I can do it, blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing. Here's a, kind of my clincher on this. If women were not highly sexed or interested in sex or didn't want to have sex with lots of different penises, why have men worked, you know, really since the patriarchy began about 10,000 years ago and men started owning stuff rather than being tribal and communal and started owning a piece of the cow, a tree, our, our partners, our kids. Since that time began, men, I believe two things happened, like the standard narrative, wanted to start managing paternity. Since now I own stuff and resources are scarce, I better make sure if I'm taking care of a kid, it's really my own seed, my own DNA. But I think the bigger piece is, is once we quit being communally sexual as a tribe where where every every man and every woman had access to partners in the tribe, because Mother Nature loves that. Mother Nature loves lots of penises and lots of vaginas, right? So when we quit doing that and we men set up this thing where now all of a sudden, well, you know, we got, we got, we're owning stuff and start limiting men's access to vaginas and women's access to penises. What happened is we men, so I, I got to get 
done. You know, I, I got, a, I got a cow. I got, I got a crop. I got, I got to go to war. I got to get this done. And the, and the women, because in tribal times, we're used to just having constant sexual access. We men had to start trying to find ways to put a limiter on that Ferrari. Um, just quick, quick you, aside. You, you, you can't go more than 20 miles an hour. That's- I, I bought a used 2007 Mercedes-Benz ML63 AMG. About Damn. Oh, it is the most powerful, naturally aspirated V8 ever put in a go- grocery getter <laughs> into a SUV. Okay. It has, it has a 200 mile an hour speed limit on it, but it has a chip limiting the speed to 155. Who needs to go 155? But you can buy a chip and replace that to take the limiter off it to where I guess it'll go 200 miles an hour, which, yeah, that's my, that's my desire. I, 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 th- I think for all humans, you just need to remove the chip and then na- so, na- nature will yeah, go just, to the 220. And, and let nature do what nature does. Exactly. Yeah. So what's yeah. happened if women were not highly sexually evolved and wanted a lot of sex? Why did we invent religion about 6,000 years ago and turn sex into a sin, mainly to control the women's ask of being sexual? Why do we stone adulteresses? Why do we put them in burqas? Why do we put them in chastity belts? Why do we put scarred letters on their head? Why, ha- if why do we have a- in the first place? Huh? Yeah, if they're not. And why do we have a culture that is, has been just filled with slut shaming? You know, for, for centuries, that if a woman is sexual, it gets knocked up. Oh, my God, what a terrible human being she is. If women don't like sex and aren't hard, highly wired for it, why do we have to control it in the way that we've tried to for 10,000 years? So I'm thinking that there's something wrong with our, with our picture there. And if we take away the, 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 the social narrative that we've all heard for so long and that's been forced on women and that men have bought into, and maybe we men have supported that because it scares the bejeebers out of us to be with a sexual Ferrari, right? When we're just sexual mopeds, I'll just leave it at that. But then the question becomes, is that Ferrari interested in one owner or multiple owners? All right, let me put it this way. All right. I'm going to create an experiment. I'm going to get a couple hotel rooms. You get to have one hotel room and I'm going to bring in a lot of women for you. You get to pick the 10 women you find the most sexually attractive. Is that the and promise? I'm promising this. Okay. I'm, I'm going to put this, you in This conversation hotel. is becoming interesting. Let's All go. Right. Yeah. You can have this hotel room for as long as you need it. The only assignment, this goes back to asking three people. <laughs> to They're only, your only assignment is, you have to terminate. You have to ejaculate in all 10 women. Man, this podcast is family friendly. What are we doing here? Go on, okay. go on, go on. Right. I'm with so, you. And it's all, as long as it takes you to do that is as long as it, and then once you get done with the 10th woman doing whatever it takes to impregnate her, 10th woman, you're done. So mm-hmm. about how long do you think that would take you to do that? Too personal, but a uh, few days. A few days. Yeah. And it's always going to take a lot longer than most of us men think it will. We might get through the first three relatively, uh, you know, within 24 hours. Everyone after that's going to feel like work. It'll take (laughs) Okay. Now, let's take any woman. Speak of yourself, uh, Rob. Okay. (laughs) This is man talk here. (laughs) Everyone will brag. We'll take any woman and this, this not sexually wounded or repressed, let's say. Put her in a hotel room. She has to pick 10 guys that she finds 
sexually attractive, and we're going to time her how long it takes her to terminate to orgasm with 10 men. Not too many hours. Not too many hours. Some women could get it done in 90 minutes. Some women, yeah, an afternoon. So they're completely wired different than us. And this is a couple of examples of how moped we are and how Ferrari (laughs) they are. Are you starting to buy in a little bit? But is that their desire? Because every woman seems to be spending her entire youthhood attempting to find that one guy and stick with that one guy. Okay. Why? You tell them. Okay. How many fairy tales and Disney movies are created that show women getting to have as many men as they want in their lifetime? Mm-hmm. None. Zero. No. It, the, you know, I, I, I'm not a big fan of the term the patriarchy, but the patriarchy is still telling little girls, you know, just, just get that one to come rescue you. Get that one. To, that's, to, you know, just, that's a very profound statement. That's a, this is really what it is. It's like you need one and he will rescue you. Yeah. It's almost like the, the whole opposite of everything. Line, you know, when the guy says to, you know, the woman, what happens after the guy rescues the woman? And, you know, pretty woman says, oh, she rescues him right back. That's a big fairy tale, right? But, but anyway, going back to it, our evolution, human evolution, is that men and women are wired to have a lot of sexual partners. Now, I'm sexually monogamous. I choose to be sexually monogamous. It's not natural. It's not wired into my DNA. But I choose it. I like it. And it's, it's one of the most, again, wherever those challenging, difficult areas are, are the growth areas. And so I use it as a a powerful personal growth machine to be sexually monogamous with one person. Is it how my wife and I are wired by mother nature over a million and a half years? No. Mother nature really doesn't like monogamy. It's, it's, It's evolutionary sin. So, yeah, exactly. Because it basically limits the possibilities of procreation, right? So it's, yeah. And the possibility, even, even, even though, even though society will say it provides for a better environment for children to grow in. But if, if we're not living in a tribe, it does. If we're living in a tribe, that's ideal. Hmm. So you're going back to Esther Perel's work, right? Where basically the, the way I sometimes describe it is I, I, I say I'm a businessman, right? So I say that uh, idea of all of me exclusively every minute of my day for the rest of my life, right? This is, this is the, the sort of the societal contract. That is not how we're wired as humans. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, we're, yeah, we're, we're wired very differently. But then, but then that provides a, a dilemma because from one side, every, every woman that I know, or many, many of the women I know, when you really make them feel comfortable to share, they'll say, yeah, I'm interested in a few adventures too, right? Mm-hmm. But, but then when they are in front of society, in front of their own sense of responsibility, they say, but that's going to reduce my chances of finding that one guy that might well, that's care. that's maybe the storyline they've been given and and remember every woman growing up grows up with constant slut shaming that a woman that wants to have i mean you know pick up susan friday's you know was it my private garden where, where she talks about the sexual fantasies of women that blew away the culture when she yeah. put that out there the things that, that that women have in their heads sexually and then going back to you know the 50 shades of gray the, oh women you know like that stuff we are still culturally so close-minded that we don't know how close-minded we are. 
that we've been repressing sexuality, especially female sexuality, for so many years, that seems normal, right? It seems normal. Now, the one piece that I'll add, I think a really core piece, especially for the feminine, is trust. And it is probably why for many women it feels safest to be with one man rather than a lot of men, is it gives a greater opportunity to build a deep sense of trust. And as I said, trust is essential for opening up. And mm-hmm. if, you, if you can't open up, you can't be blissed, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think the core thing is not that I think every woman's looking for the one, even though they've been told to do that by culture. I think they're doing for they're looking for the the one whom they can trust and open themselves to. Robert, you're amazing. I'm I'm so always so grateful. I want I want to close with one very quick tip so that people can summarize a lot of what we spoke about. You and I both here are attempting to find, though controversial points, hmm, uh, points that will definitely make a difference to relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Will make them better. If you were to sum it up in an advice for men, and by the way, an advice for women, because I believe your work is equally valid because a woman can definitely, like your wife kisses you, to reassure you that these are the things that you need. I think there is a role on the woman's side to make clear what she actually needs, right? Yeah. So if you were to give advice in brief to the men listening for them to really be the men that they can become and for the women listening to, to really create relationships that will be fulfilling and lasting. Yeah, for, for the men, I, I say this in No More Mr. Nice Guy. I put it in the preface that I wrote when they kind of did just the cleaned up version. And I said... Recovery from nice guy syndrome is not about becoming a different person or a better person. It's about becoming more you. It's about mm-hmm. loving you, embracing you, every part of you. You know, you, all the part that you like the world to see, all the parts you don't want the world to see. Integrating all of those and loving and embracing you. Now, to do that, I'm, I firmly believe we men need a tribe. And I, I believe every, any way that men can find to go connect, deeply with other men. I don't care if it's through martial arts. I don't care if it's through a divorce support group, through, you know, a men's group, through Mankind Project, 12 Steps, whatever, go find tribe and connect with men. I think that is the way we we then can embrace the deepest sense of who we are and honor the fact that we're, we're a man and it's okay to be a man. And we surround ourselves with men that support that. Yeah. And for a woman. For a woman is that in my experience, the more time you spend in your masculine trying to get stuff done, which is, that's what's been imposed on women culturally. They've been told that's how you're going to get fulfilled. And there is fulfillment in that. But my experience is if you don't give yourself opportunity to be done too, to, to let go for a little while, to be open and receptive, without doing that, you're not going to find your deepest heart's longing. Mm. So again, you know, I'm, I'll encourage women to challenge that because most women nowadays have been brought up teaching. No, you got to go get the degree. You got to go get the career. You got to go compete. You got to go. But I know when, when my book came out 17 years ago, I went to New York to do a book tour and my, my editor at Barnes and Noble uh, took me out to dinner with her fiance, I think. And he was an attorney and uh, with another couple and they were both professionals and Neither women had children at that time. And both women, they were in their mid-30s, said, you know, I think I'm ready for something different. 
You know, they've been doing the hard driven career, get it done. And they both said, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm ready for something different. And so I'd say to women, be willing to honor that. It's not either or, you know, you don't have to give this up to have that, but you do have to open a door for this other to happen. So I shall forever call you sensei. I shall forever, <laughs> shall for, you know, I'll, I'll forever smile when you say. <laughs> and, and I'll always be grateful for what you taught me, Robert, and taught so many of us. I love, love, love your work. I'm very grateful for the time that you've given us. And Thank you for this can't, invitation. And, can't and, wait for the next book. Come on. And you, faster. You are love. I feel <laughs> nothing but love in your presence. So thank you for this opportunity. And uh, I look forward to talking again. What an interesting conversation. Whether you've agreed with every point or didn't agree with anything at all, it's definitely true that Robert Glover brings a different perspective to a topic that we sometimes shy away from talking about. I'd want to say, oh, what a nice guy, but definitely I'm not going to do that. Before I go, let me remind you that you have a role to play So spread the word on slow-mo, tell others what you learn, and follow me on social media so that we can connect closer and speak about what you would like to see here on slow-mo and your feedback on any of the topics we've discussed. I am mo underscore gaudet on Instagram, mo.gaudet.personal on Facebook, mo gaudet on LinkedIn, and mgaudet on Twitter. I hope to hear from you soon. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity that you give me to talk to such interesting people on such interesting topics. I love you all for listening, and I'll see you next time.